with me and pray as we enter into God's word together. Father, we thank you for the joy in this house this morning. We pray that through the scriptures and by the enablement of the Holy Spirit that that joy would only exceed all the more as a response to the word of God that you have prepared for us. Lord, we pray that this message that you have set for this day would not go powerless would not just reach our minds, but would grip our hearts. Lord, we pray that there would be a renewing of our joy and our salvation. We need that, Lord. We need it desperately, and we pray that your word would come clearly, unctionized. Not void of power, not void of conviction, not void of comfort, but Lord, give us what we need this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we know about the Bible, this book, we realize that it is not just one book. It is not a book in which you read it from cover to cover in the sense that it is one consistent theme or one consistent story. Though it is one story, it is told in 66 different books by many different authors written in actually different languages over a period of a long, long time. And we can take this book because it is supernaturally compiled together, and we can actually call the Bible a library in itself. And what's so supernatural about it is because there is this vast range of genres and and authors and, and different periods in which it was written, it still has this underlining story about God's core message to the world about our need for a savior and God delivering that savior and we can take different verses from different portions of this library and combine them together and come up with truths and there's nothing wrong with that but if we want to extract the most out of this library out of this book out of this bible out of God's word to us we must discipline ourselves to look at each book And give our attention to what that book is saying by a specific author who had a specific message to a specific audience with a specific intention and goal in mind in his writing. And that's what we're going to be doing for the next few weeks. We're going to be entering into a new series as a family together in one specific book in the New Testament because we want to get the most out of this book. It's the book of Galatians. The book of Galatians. Turn your Bibles to the book of Galatians as we begin a new series in this precious letter. What is this book about as we start? What is Galatians written for? Well, we know that it is written by the Apostle Paul. It is one of the earliest writings that he had. And this book, again, has a goal in mind because he was writing to an audience that was dealing with a very serious issue. And notice at the end of verse 2 of chapter 1 in your Bibles of Galatians. It says here, And all the brothers who are with me to the churches, plural, of Galatia. Paul was not writing to one specific church. Galatians isn't a letter written to one specific local body, but to several different churches that were in the Galatian area. And so this is a region that Paul is reading to. This This is to a vast amount of people that were converted under his ministry. And they were dealing with something. Though they were different in their congregations in terms of location, they all had one thing in common. They all were dealing with false teachers that were infiltrating their meetings and their congregations with this one deceptive message, undermining the gospel of the grace of God by trying to convince these believers that salvation is not by faith alone. And Paul here is going to respond to this. We're going to notice through this book in the next few weeks that these false teachers were much more subtle than we would assume false teachers to be. They were not as obvious. They were known as the Judaizers. They came in with the concept that, yes, you can embrace this Jesus. But because of their Jewish background, they also said that his finished work was not enough 
And in order for you to truly ensure salvation, to truly be secure that you have eternal life, you must also additionally adopt the Jewish Mosaic law. And so they they came in and they did not dismiss the idea of Christ. They did not shoo away the concept of him dying on the cross for our sins. They just said that wasn't enough. You need to add to that. You need to work and you need to maintain and you need to obey all that was given on Sinai and from Sinai to the Jewish people in order for you to truly be a Christian. They weren't rejecting the reality of the Messiah again. But what they did do was convince them that you need to do more. Paul gets word of this. And this is what this letter is about. And we're going to notice that because of this theological crisis that he has a certain tone right from the get-go of this letter. If you're familiar with the New Testament, specifically the letters, you'll notice that Paul the Apostle had a certain pattern in how he would introduce his letters. You probably notice a certain thing that he would do in most of his epistles. Hear this in 1 Corinthians 1, 4. I give thanks to my God always for you. Philippians 1, 3. I thank my God and all my remembrance of you. Colossians 1, 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians 1, 2, we give thanks to God always for all of you. And he would often then also let them know that he'd been praying for them day and night. And he would give a praise report over these certain congregations. And it's a beautiful example, really, just to go on a little rabbit trail. It's a beautiful example of how Paul would often come to a place of affirming his love and gratitude for his brothers and sisters before he would offer any hint of correction. What an example that this apostle showed. And you and I must take heed to that because especially in an intimate family like this, in this church body where we're really involved with each other's lives. I mean, we, some of us in here meet three times a week just based on the meetings and we meet on top of that outside of those meetings. This is, this is family. And because we're family, you're going to notice some things about one another that you might not notice if you just met one hour once a week. You will see, at times, a fellow brother or sister that perhaps in a certain area in their life are not lining up to Christ-likeness. But with that in mind, may we imitate the Apostle Paul who first knew how to bathe his brothers and sisters in love to such a degree that even when he brought about correction or instruction or exhortation in terms of their character or their lifestyle, they did not even feel the sting of scolding. It's a beautiful example. We give thanks always for you. I've been praying for you. And then he goes on to say, listen, I've been hearing this and I've been observing this and and word came to me about this. If we want to be those who want to give correction to others because we truly care about them, let's do it in love like this man did. But what's amazing about the book of Galatians is that he does not follow that pattern when he writes to this group of people. When it comes to this specific letter, we do not see any praise. We do not see any mention of thanks. He goes straight to correction in shocking fashion. And the reason why he does this, because it shows the urgency of the matter. This is not a light thing. He doesn't waste any time. He goes right for the jugular. He wants to deal with this issue that the Galatians have been plagued with, and he doesn't want them to miss anything in his warnings. And so he comes here, and he begins in verse 1. And before we read that, we have to realize that there's a summary to this gospel. There's a summary to this message, rather, in the book of Galatians. If you want to summarize what this book is all about, you can simply say this, that there are false teachers that were saying Jesus plus something equals salvation. And what Paul's about to say is Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. He's about to come in and say it's about one single work that was performed by Christ And we might be sitting here this morning and perhaps fall into the temptation that for the rest of this series with the mindset of, well, that's nice. This is is a good teaching in terms of understanding how the church dealt with false teaching in Paul's day. 
And we're here to say this morning, no, this is not something that Paul is dealing with in his day. This is something that's very real in our day. For us to think that the gospel of the grace of God is not coming under attack and is not even infiltrating the true church of Jesus Christ is foolishness. And so let's embrace the possibility that even in this room this morning, there are some who are struggling with the idea that it's all about what Jesus has done alone. So we read in verse 1 to verse 5. Let's read this together. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. The first thing that the apostle Paul does right here is that he affirms his apostleship. He says, listen, I've been sent I haven't been sent by man. I haven't been sent by other apostles. I didn't bring myself into this ministry. I am an apostle. I'm a messenger. I am one who lays foundations concerning the truth of who God is. And I've been commissioned not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. So right there, he is bringing forth, he's showing his badge, so to speak, and say, let me just tell you who I am before I write to you. And he expands on this from verse 11 down to the rest of the chapter that we're going to deal with in the next few weeks. But right there, right from the beginning, he says, I'm an apostle. Then he goes on to say, in verse 2, and all the brothers who are with me. And so he's there affirming even that there are others who are not only greeting them, but there are others that are with him that agree with him about what he's about to say. In other words, I am an apostle and there are a band of brothers with me that approve this message. And then he goes on into something that I think is so fascinating in light of this entire book. He goes on to give the gospel in a nutshell fashion. He goes on to present the truth that he's going to expound on. And what's so beautiful about the book of Galatians as a whole, it's really a compacted version of the book of Romans. Romans is a vast theological systematic thought about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Galatians is almost like the little brother of Romans. And in this verse, first verse here, before he does anything else, he wants to remind them what the gospel is. He says in verse 3, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. How fitting. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. He's hoping and desiring for them to know grace and to know peace. To know freedom, to know liberty, to know rest. And to know the peace that comes with understanding that grace. And it's fitting because they are dealing with people that are attacking that very grace that offers those things. And Paul's here to assure them that grace and peace that you may be attempting to work by obeying the law on top of Christ's work. You don't have that grace. And you're not going to experience that peace. It solely comes from the hands of the merciful God that has given us his son, Jesus Christ. But he desires for them to experience that. He wants them to come to that place. And I love how he even puts it in order. Grace and peace. Grace first, then peace. You can't have a sense of peace unless you first embrace grace. Grace and peace. Would you take it, Galatians? Would you you embrace it, Galatians? Because whether you realize it or not, you've been deceived and you are forfeiting grace and peace as a result. How does this grace and peace come? Verse 4, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. So now he points to Jesus Christ and he says that grace and peace is flooded out of his pierced hands, his pierced side, and his pierced feet. That's the only way you can experience what I'm telling you you can experience. This must have been shocking to them. He says here that it's based on one soul sacrifice and not what you add to it. Not what you think is necessary. Not what you've been convinced that you need to do from the Mosaic law. God is satisfied alone in what Christ has done. And because of that gospel, you're delivered from this present evil age. Not from the presence of evil necessarily, but from the power of evil that you and I are surrounded by. Isn't that amazing? 
Because here they are trying to work themselves up to know what it means to truly be free. And he says, you can't deliver yourself. If you're not solely resting on the grace of Jesus Christ and you're trying to sweat it out by obeying God's law as a motivation to be saved and approved by him, good luck. Because his sacrifice and his sacrifice alone brings deliverance from even the bondage that this present evil age tries to spew on you daily. And that's why even at the end of the book of Galatians, he begins to talk about walking in the Spirit. It's about walking in the Spirit. It's about being empowered by the Holy Spirit. Not doing it in your own flesh. Not what kind of markings you bring to your body. Who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. And I love this part in verse 5 because Paul himself in that very short sentence cannot even contain the praise in light of that revelation. And he breaks forth by saying, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. You knew that this man believed this gospel that he preached. He couldn't even contain himself when he was trying to explain it. And there's a secondary thing to that. Because it's based on Christ's work alone, he deserves glory alone. And Galatians, whether you realize it or not, because you've been tampering with the gospel of grace and been convinced by those who think that the gospel is saved by grace plus works, you're taking glory from Christ. You're robbing Christ of his glory and placing it on yourself by indirectly making a statement by your decisions and by your lifestyle, by tampering with this truth, to say, I need to help Christ. And he says, nope, glory be to him alone, not to you. Because no man can boast before the cross unless he boasts in the cross alone. And nobody's in heaven and nobody will ever be in heaven to say or brag how they got there. But based on what Christ alone has done, And Paul comes to this place in the introduction. You can imagine that as this letter to the Galatians was written and sent out and read by the leaders, that the Galatians began to tremble. Because nowhere in Paul's introduction does he say that your works have any part of your salvation. He puts it all on Jesus Christ. He puts it all on the Savior. He puts it all on the Son of God. And nothing of what they did or nothing of the law was mentioned concerning that grace. And this letter, based on this tone, I'm sure, thundered through the region of Galatia that would literally shake the foundations of every false teaching that was presented by wolves. And that thunder is still thundering today. Verse 6 now. He comes to the place where he says something so real, so raw. I'm astonished. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. This verse alone shows us that at one point the Galatians did embrace the gospel. That they did start well. That they did come to a place where they understood this grace, that it is by faith alone. And they were walking in that for a season. But over time, voices from another sort persuaded them to turn from it and to embrace a different gospel. The Galatians did not fully make that move, but they were in transition of, yes, embracing that ideology and that false theology completely. And Paul wants to come and interfere. He wants to intervene in this process. And we might be thinking to ourselves, like Paul, astonishingly, why in the world would anybody turn away from this gospel of grace? Why would somebody who first understood it, why would somebody who first embraced it, why would somebody who first lavish in that grace and that understanding of freedom and work based on Christ alone all for a sudden be attracted to one that says, no, you have to add to it by your own works? Paul says, I'm astonished. I'm shocked that you're actually making this decision, that you even allowed yourself to come to that place. How? Reading this verse, I thought to myself, how? How can somebody make that move? But when you understand the human nature, we understand how it's possible. Our human nature is more attracted to works than it is to grace. Ever since the beginning, ever since our first parents in the Garden of Eden, when they sinned, what did they do? what men are doing today, gathering their own fig leaves to sow 
and to create their own loincloths so that they can cover their own shame from their own sin. Let me cover my own nakedness. Let me cover my own shame. Let me me hide myself from the holiness of God by working and producing something of my own. And in that very same chapter where they did fall into sin and produce their own covering, we see God coming and doing something that he desires to do today. He makes a sacrifice and he clothes them with animal skins, foreshadowing his desire to clothe the sons of Adam with the righteousness of Christ. Even from Genesis 3, he saw fig leaves. And he said, take those fig leaves off and put on the sacrifice that I made for you. And men today are still trying to pretty themselves up and cover their own fear and shame and guilt like our first parents did. We're drawn to it. We have this idea because he is a holy, righteous, sinless God. He requires me to be holy, sinless and righteous, and he does. But nobody could do it, so he received it from his son on our behalf. But this idea that this bewitchment of the Galatians can happen so much more commonly than we think. Because it's possible even for us to come to a place in our walk with the Lord as we are being sanctified, as we're being transformed, as we're being cleansed, as God is continually highlighting areas in our hearts that need to be changed and conformed to the image of His Son, we we almost come to a place, and this is why the, the Bible says in Ephesians 6, put on the helmet of salvation. Put on the truth of the grace of God. Here, because your thoughts can go somewhere, and here's where some thoughts can go. This idea that Jesus Christ... He's the one that was righteous for me. Just sounds too good to be true. Really? Is it just based on what he's done and me trusting in that? And because of the amazing grace, how sweet the sound, it's almost too amazing. And we convince ourselves, maybe I'll help out Jesus just a little bit. And so now let me begin to live in a certain way, motivated by fear that just in case that this gospel is too good to be true, I'll have something to show before God to convince him that I have the right to have eternal life. This is just too good to be true. So Lord, okay, let me just do this. And now your obedience is not motivated from approval, but for the desire to be approved. Can I ask you a very real question this morning? Why do you obey? Why do you come to prayer every Wednesday? Why do you read your Bible every day? Why do you share your faith? Why do you not look at pornography? Why do you not gossip? Why are you honest with your money? Is it because you want to gain approval from God? If every act of obedience that you have set on your path in this life is not motivated by a desire to know him and be intimate with him, then you have to ask yourself this question. Am I walking in righteousness so that I may be justified before God? And you might have this idea, yes, Jesus Christ paid, but it just can't be that simple. So here's my righteousness, God. Here's my attendance. Here's my prayer life. Here's my scripture memory. And you don't really have freedom in your heart. It's not joy anymore. Obedience is not joy. Can you confidently come up to this microphone this morning and say, I obey and I see every command as a pursuit of intimacy with Christ. He has positioned me to be a son and a daughter, and I with joy as a response to this grace, wanting to know him, wanting to draw near to him, wanting his voice, wanting his presence, I obey. And his commands are not burdensome. I wonder how many people, if they really ask themselves, why do I do what I do, realize that perhaps they're not fully convinced that what Jesus has done is enough. And maybe, 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 maybe we are fully convinced that Jesus Christ has done it. But like 98%, 
But we're not living with that freedom. We're not living with that joy. And you might be wondering, why are we going through the book of Galatians for this very reason? My prayer is that as we go through this book week after week and hear the gospel from different angles, as Paul is about to unpack it from different angles and see the law and the relationship to grace and see what true freedom is and see the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives because of the gospel, that we would know freedom internally, that you would really know rest, that you would really know joy in the gospel, that you would have that step in your obedience that is motivated by understanding who you are based on the perfect one that walked on your behalf. I I want to prayfully with you ask God that we would feel it in our souls and not just know it in our minds. That's what Paul is steering his people to understand. The simplicity of the gospel. And as simple as it is, we've made it so complicated. And we've convinced ourselves otherwise and we let the devil lie to us about what he's already done. I'm astonished. I'm shocked. I I can't believe this. And he says in verse 7, not that there is another one, being another gospel, because gospel is good news. And there is no other good news than this good news. But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. And so here he says, listen, there are some people that have entered into your congregation, and they had a specific strategy because false teaching is dangerous but this is the most dangerous type of false teaching it's not a false teaching that clearly contrasts the essential doctrines of the faith it's not one that says here's a different savior his name is not jesus here's a different way to eternal life it's one that what these judaizers were doing taking the gospel adding to it, twisting it, removing from it, and leaving enough truth in it so that you would be convinced that you're not really veering off from the truth when in fact you are. That's what these people were doing. Mingling truth with enough falsehood to condemn. They distorted the gospel. They were changing its shape. They were changing its form. They were changing essentially what it's all about by leaving enough in there for people to be convinced and to bite. For somebody to come up here and say, Jesus Christ is not the Savior, we'd all be like, see you later, get out of here. But for somebody to say, yeah, he's the Savior. But you know, God also gave the law. What do we do with that? Do you see? Do you see? They distort the gospel. Listen, there are many false teachings out there that are obvious. And there are many false teachings out there today that are not so obvious. There are many distortions to the gospel. It has all the right pieces, just in the wrong places. It has the ring to it, but there's just something a little off. Shall we name some that we are all familiar with? Shall we name one to begin? The health and wealth gospel. What does this gospel preach? This gospel does acknowledge that Jesus Christ died on the cross. But the end goal of that sacrifice is not eternal life, is not forgiveness, is not being conformed to the image of the Son. It's that Christ has now provided a means for you on this side of heaven to be wealthy and healthy. That he has provided a way for authority, so to speak, to be restored in your life. So that you can claim things in your life based on his power that he has made available to you and I. And so it's about possessions. It's about materialism. It's a gospel that persuades people to follow Jesus because you're better off in this world, materially speaking, doing so if you do not. And and we might hear something like that and almost chuckle. We, We almost might chuckle like, really, people believe that? You have no idea. How this is still living and active even today. It's a gospel that doesn't say Jesus is enough. It's not about a gospel about his righteousness, his peace, his joy, his forgiveness, and his power in this life. It's a gospel that says you can have more. You can have more because he made a way for you to have more. When in fact this gospel says you have Jesus, our gospel, and he's enough. So like Paul Whether you are in gain or in lack, I could do everything through Christ who strengthens me. That's our gospel. I remember having a conversation. If you don't think that this is a very real thing, if you don't think that this is something that's actually still out there, even in the West, 
especially in the West, and it is being exported to the world from America. I remember having a conversation with two young men in their teens that were baffled by the understanding that you can be Christian and be sick, physically speaking. That it's not God's will for you to be sick. That God would not allow that. And if you are walking in sickness, you are walking in a lack of faith. Young men. And sitting across from those chairs trying to rewire their understanding about how the apostles ended up in their lives. How people, righteous people were actually inflicted with pain. I thought to myself, I thought this was something that they dealt with in the 80s. In the 70s. No, this is very real today. It's a distortion. It's a distortion of the gospel. Shall we name another? The universalism gospel. It's a gospel that's a distortion in this. It's the belief that every human being that God has created or will ever create, no matter how they live their life or whether or not they put their faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, will end up having eternal life anyway. And take a verse like in Colossians 1.20 where it says that Christ will redeem all things or will reconcile all things unto himself, including those who don't believe. There's different names for this. Ultimate reconciliation, universal salvation, the larger hope, the doctrine of inclusion, biblical universalism. Call it what you want. It's all wrong anyway. It's a gospel that doesn't demand a response. It's a gospel that has no urgency to send people out to preach. It's a gospel that says Jesus' sacrifice does not demand a response by faith. It's a sacrifice that was so large and huge that regardless if you respond, you're coming in anyway. And if you did live a bad life, you will enter into the next life. And God will find a way to purge you and to clean you up before you enter into his presence. But there's no such thing as hell. There's no such thing as judgment. This is becoming more and more popular in our day. It's a distortion of the gospel. It acknowledges that Christ died. It acknowledges that he shed his blood. But it dismisses the necessity to respond to it by faith. Guys, this is creeping into churches. This is creeping into congregations. Shall we name another distortion? I'm saved, so dot, 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 gospel. I'm saved, so dot, 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 gospel. It's a gospel that says it's all about grace. So live how you want. Popular, is it not? Though maybe not proclaimed as directly, but definitely implied by the lack of teaching and the necessity of being born again and regenerated by the Holy Spirit. And so you have so many people that made this false confession, that have a false understanding of grace, and have allowed themselves to now use it as a license to sin. And you might be thinking what many people think when you enter into a series like the book of Galatians that emphasizes so much on grace. If you preach too much grace, you'll give people the wrong idea that they can live how they want because Jesus paid it all. That's not true. Because when one truly understands what Jesus has done, they'll forsake their sin. And they'll walk away from it. Only the corrupt and the one who loves darkness will understand this series on grace and still say, I can live how I want. This grace that Jesus offers is so powerful, but it does not empower you to live confidently and casually in your sin. It is so ferocious. It is so scandalous. It is so overwhelming that as a response, it propels you to run away from the very thing that put him on the cross, not to embrace it. I'm saved. So dot, 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 gospel is very real. And so is the next one that I'm about to present. Here's another distortion. I'm saved by grace and dot, 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 gospel. This distortion of the gospel is what the Galatians were dealing with. They heard the gospel. They understood the gospel. And they thought to themselves, it can't be this, though. Listen, we do not believe in a gospel, just to give us a, a disclaimer, that says you're saved and it doesn't matter what happens in your life. We believe that this gospel is so powerful that it will change your life, that it will result in fruits, that it will result in a change of perspective, that repentance, that change of mind will occur, and that you will walk out the way Jesus called us to walk out with the empowerment of the Spirit and the desire to do so. We believe that. Let's just make that very clear from the beginning. 
But that's not what the Galatians were dealing with. That's not what many people today are dealing with under legalistic bondage. What is it? I'm saved, but here's some extra things to make sure that I'm saved. I'm saved, but here's my prayer life to show God that I need his approval. And here's my Bible reading, again, all those examples. Or here's my performance in order for me to maintain and retain my righteousness before God that will justify me. Wrong. And Paul comes in on the scene with this distortion of the gospel. Trusting in Christ plus fill in the blank is not true. And millions of people have adopted this view of the Christian faith, which we will discuss down the road in this series. And in the case of this audience, it was embrace the Jewish law, especially circumcision, and you'll, you'll be a Christian. So what happens in verse 8? But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. You want to talk about intensity. You want to talk about seriousness. You want to talk about no compromise. It's said here in this verse. Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. And just in case that the Galatians didn't hear it the first time, he brings a double emphasis in the next verse. As we have said before, Almost to say, let me just make myself clear. So now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Anathema in the original. What does that mean? Damned. Let him come under the judgment and the wrath of God for daring to proclaim a gospel contrary to one that is solely based on grace. And we might look at this apostle and say, really? Is it, really, is it really that important? Is it really that intense? Do we, do we have to go to that extreme to say, let anybody who proclaims another word, another gospel, let him be accursed? And listen, we might look at this and say, this is a little bit too much. But instead of being concerned, should we not be convicted? Instead of looking at a text like this and be concerned about how bold and clear-cut it is, I don't know about you, but when I was reading this the other night, I thought to myself, I'm more convicted than I am concerned because Paul must have a revelation of the importance of the pure gospel that many people do. This is not a matter of different opinions. This is not a matter of you believe what you want to believe and I believe. Paul says this is about eternal life. And if I love, I'm going to warn. And if I love, I'm going to make this clear. And if I love, I'm going to sound the alarm that nobody should tamper with this gospel. Why? Look back at verse 6. I'm astonished that you were so quickly deserting him. Notice that he doesn't say that you're deserting it. You're deserting him. It's a personal thing that if you tamper with the gospel of Jesus Christ, you are forfeiting relationship with Jesus Christ. This is not about just you believing in something. This is about you entering into a union with Christ through the gospel. And if you don't have the true gospel, you don't have the true Christ. You're walking away from him when you reject this gospel. And I'm coming to tell you. And I'm coming to warn you. I'm coming to rescue with the truth of the simplicity of this message that is yours. Convicted of the concern that he had. And this is not just the Apostle Paul. This is all the apostles. Turn your Bibles to 2 John. 2 John. We'll begin in verse 10. Paul was dealing with false teachers. John was dealing with false teachers. And we've been talking about this on Friday night. John was dealing with people that were coming and spreading a message that was saying, Jesus Christ did not come in the flesh. And if Jesus Christ didn't come in the flesh... Everything about what we believe concerning this gospel crumbles. If Jesus Christ didn't raise in the flesh, and if he's not returning in the flesh, then there's no hope for resurrection. And so he warns, John warns in this short little letter, be careful, and he gives practical commands of how Christians ought to respond and relate to these false teachers. Look what he says in verse 10. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, what teaching? That Jesus Christ came in the flesh. Do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. Verse 11. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. That sounds intense. 
this is the apostle that is known as the apostle of love of all titles. And yet he comes with this instruction to the believers. If anyone comes and does not bring this teaching, don't receive him to your house. Don't greet him. Because if you do, you're actually participating in his works and advancing the message of the devil himself. Now we got to be careful with this. We got to read this very carefully and slowly before we come into patterns and decisions that are not Christ-like. First of all, he's speaking about people that are directly and intentionally deceiving and teaching contrary to the fundamental truths of our salvation. He's not talking about people that are bringing secondary issues concerning the Bible and how church should work and the spiritual gifts. He's not talking about that. He's talking about people that are coming in, that are going from town to town with a message that literally fractures everything about what we stand on concerning eternal life. He says, teachers, those who have said it and motivated their lives based on spreading this false truth. And what these teachers would do in John's day, very much like what people are doing today, sometimes you see them on bicycles, is that they were going from town to town and they would require hospitality. They would require people to bring them into their homes and to provide food for them and and for them to be able to have a night to stay and, and so that they can move on to the next place. And they needed, they needed hospitality. And John says here that if you do this, what you're actually doing, whether you realize it or not, is that you are fueling them to spread this message of falsehood by supporting them as they come in and out of different places. So when he's saying, do not receive them into your houses, that's exactly what he has in mind. And what he's saying, when he says, do not greet them, he's not saying, don't don't look at them and not say hi. Don't look at them and not say, how are you? Don't look at them and not converse or evangelize them. What, What he has in mind here by greeting them is, do not affirm them or bless them. Do do not come to a place where you say, God bless you. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful day. May, May the Lord be with you. He says, don't do that. Don't do that. Because what you are doing is you are giving them a false assurance of what the message that they are carrying is right and probably in line with what you're saying and what you believe. And you're confusing people around you that are watching. And I heard a pastor give a very practical example of this, that he was living in one neighborhood at one time in his life where across the street, right across the street, was a person who did not believe the gospel. And him and his wife, this pastor, would would weekly almost have conversations with this man and and give him tracts and explain what God has done in Christ. And and he was so intrigued. He was so interested. There There was great conversations out of that. And he would have that interaction regularly. This pastor also regularly had Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses come to his door. And what he would do is that he would step outside of his house, open the Bible, and he would converse with them. And he noticed that over time, not only was he conversing with them and trying to show them the truth, but his neighbor across the street was watching him have this interaction. And the example he gave us, what would happen if the neighbor across the street saw me embracing these people, saying, oh, God bless you guys. How are you? Come on in. Let's, let's have some dinner and talk some things over. And those same people came to his door and presented their gospel and presented their literature and presented their idea of who God is. Is it possible for that person to say, well, John across the street, John across the street was embracing them. So maybe they are the same. It requires us to operate in such discernment and wisdom because both Apostle Paul and the Apostle John had an understanding about how dangerous this false teaching is. This is not a call to not evangelize. This is not a call not to speak to those who preach a different Christ. It is a call not to bestow blessing, affirmation, support, or show hospitality, lest these people are encouraged and fueled to keep going in their deception. We need another text to prove that this isn't a call to be rude or impolite. And so here's another text, 2 Timothy 2. 2 Timothy 2, 24 to 26. You can turn there just for the sake of branding this in your mind. Look what Paul says. The same Paul that says that everyone who preaches a different Christ, a different gospel, be cursed. He says in verse 24, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. Okay, kind to everyone. So automatically, even when you're engaging with those who preach a different gospel, kindness must be evident. Able to teach 
patiently enduring evil. Now here it is in verse 25. Correcting his opponents with gentleness. So yes, there could be firmness. Yes, there can be urgency. But oh, would it be oozing with gentleness. May they see that there is a great concern in our hearts for their souls. May they see that there is... This isn't a game that we're playing. They might think you and I have the same Jesus. They might think you and I have the same Christ, and they might convince you otherwise, but you know better. And you know what this will cost them and cost those that they preach to. So with that in mind, with gentleness, with kindness, what? Verse 26. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Gentleness, kindness, does it mean compromise? Does it mean that you bestow blessing? Does it mean that you fuel their ministry? It means that you come with a deliverance of your words, in your actions, with your eyes even, so that they can sense that this person is truly concerned about my salvation. Paul says back in Galatians 1, 8-9, let anyone who preaches a different gospel be cursed. But let's not, let's not look at that and say that's very harsh it is serious, but notice what he's making. He's making a general statement. He's not saying, let this person naming people by names accursed. He's not naming people out. No, he's even including himself. He says, even if we, even if we or an angel preaches a different gospel, reject it. He includes himself in that matter. So Paul in those verses is making a sweeping general statement by saying, anybody, including us apostles, Galatians, that would preach a different gospel that doesn't emphasize and base it upon his work alone, let them be accursed. And so we come back to verse 10 of Galatians 1. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? That's a fitting rhetorical question after that statement that he made in Galatians 1, 8 to 9. Because you can imagine the jarring reaction that the Galatians had when he made such a statement because it's quite possible that those false teachers were sitting in the very room when it was being read. And Paul says, am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I was still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Paul was not looking to be buddy-buddies with those that were preaching false teaching. Paul was not looking to have this mindset of, let's just all hold hands and get along as long as we acknowledge Jesus, that's fine. No. He knew that this was a matter of life and death. And he says, my ministry, my messages, my letter to you, Galatians, is not motivated to make you feel good about yourselves or to please you or to praise me as a response to this. I will stand before God Almighty based on how I handle this gospel. And so with that, I'm about to unpack in these next few chapters, Paul says, something that will shock you but will also save you. And Paul's statement here has to be the anthem of this church in this generation. Because if we think that this is something that Paul was dealing in his culture alone, maybe you're not aware of it, but hear it from this microphone this morning. There is a growing, spreading ideology and movement even of even Christians that are falling into this trap of embracing different branches of Christianity, notice my fingers, that have a different gospel but under and for the name of unity and love are forsaking the true gospel and are locking arms with those that are preaching a different gospel. And it's convincing people by the droves of making no distinction between the true gospel and grace plus this. Oh, just because they have Jesus in their Bibles and their books. And just because they believe that Jesus died on the cross. Examine it carefully and you'll realize that a majority, millions of people are believing a different idea of what it meant that Jesus Christ died on the cross. So from this moment on in Galatians, Paul is going to unpack what he said in verses 1 to 5. I'm going to tell you what this gospel is about. I'm going to show you what the relationship of the law is to this gospel. I'm going, to, I'm going to show you what it means to walk in the spirit. I'm going to show you what circumcision means. I'm going to show you and hammer in the power of this gospel for this life and the life to come. 
So in the beginning and the introduction of this series, one simple application, one simple question to ask yourself as you are sitting in these chairs. Do you know the freedom of this gospel? Do you have rest in your soul? That whatever righteousness you have is embodied in the Son of God. Or is it, yes, it's that. But God, here's my performance. And you realize that your joy fluctuates better based on whether you had a good week or not. Brother, are you against being zealous in our sanctification? Brother, are you against holiness? No, and Paul's not against it. Paul's going to talk about something called the fruit of the Spirit in the very same letter. But he wants to lay a foundation. He wants to lay a foundation. And it's establishing a peace that comes from knowing grace. Our salvation is not Jesus died on the cross and. It's Jesus died on the cross. It is finished. Let's pray. Father, right now we choose to look at our righteousness in Jesus. And Lord, if there's anybody in here that has said, yes, it's Jesus, but baptism as well. Yes, it's Jesus plus the sacraments. Yes, it's Jesus plus my attendance. Lord, we pray that under the weight of grace, all of that would be crushed. And that, Lord, you would receive glory forever and ever. Amen. We ask, Lord, as a result of this word, that there would be a newfound joy that we would find ourselves laying on green pastures at rest and at peace. We can truly say it is well with my soul because we have not embraced a distortion of the gospel, but the pure gospel itself. And so Lord, right now, Help us as your people see Jesus and see him as enough. See Jesus and see our salvation. To see Jesus and to see why we have confidence to be right with God forever. And Lord, we respond to this grace by singing about it. Lord, we choose to put on the helmet of salvation that the devil would try to attack our minds lest we have it on to give us a different version of what your word says. May Christ be glorified in this place as we respond to your word. In Jesus' name we pray.